Podcast One. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, here's a couple of questions that you might want to attempt to answer and we're going to, which is, are Australian marketers more conservative and risk averse than their international peers? And is the relationship between marketing and brands and agencies in the Australian market more toxic than international markets? Big questions. With us today is uh, Sherilyn Shackle, who many of you will know, and if those who don't, uh, is the founder and CEO of the Marketing Academy. It's a not-for-profit organisation that develops talent uh, across media, marketing and advertising in Europe, in the US and in Australia. Sherilyn has a unique perspective as an outsider on the profession of marketing and media. We're going to talk to her about some things that she's seen internationally and how Australian marketers and how the Australian industry is tracking versus their international peers. So welcome. There's a big, big uh, intro, Sherilyn, but welcome. You've been, you're well known to the Australian market. Let's get straight into it, shall we? So as we've mentioned, you've got a really interesting international perspective perspective on what's going on amongst marketers first. And let's go there. You just had your 2019 Scholars graduate. Tell us a little bit about what you're seeing uh, in the Australian market versus international and what's going on in the, in the marketer world. Well, firstly, uh, I just need to say, because I really want to, that I love Australia and the Australian Academy is just really close to my heart. So we've been here for five years. Um, we've been in the UK for 10 and we've been in the States for a year. We're just moving into year two. Um, and I believe that the industry down here has some phenomenal talent. I think that the um, the talent pool down here is really good. I think both agency side and marketing side, I think the kind of talent capability is comparing really well, especially with the emerging generations of leaders in the industry. But, you know, every country has its own cultural differences. Every country has its own different culture within leadership. And there is impact around that in the individual countries. And I've just seen a few differences down here. Yes. And they being what? What is the most notable for you? I think that from a leadership perspective down here, there's a reticence to show any kind of like real vulnerability down here in a leadership style. And leadership where you're really making an impact on the people that you're working with and your customers, given that leadership is all about influence. And therefore, if you're in marketing, you're influencing like the citizens of the planet, you really do need to be able to open yourself up, be more authentic, have integrity and be vulnerable and open about who you are in order to create the trust that gives you the permission to have influence over people. And I've just found some differences in Australia. You know, you've got that tall poppy syndrome down here. I mean, (laughs) I didn't even know what that was when I first arrived in Australia. And it's horrific. If you really look at what that thing is, it is the desire to suppress the achievements of others. It's the desire to suppress unique skills and capabilities in others. If you have an environment where those kinds of behaviours are going on, then you're not and cannot be enabling your people to, to thrive. Because if you can't focus on the things that people are absolutely brilliant at, you're just going to focus on what they're crap at and that's going to cause issues down the line. So 
I'm really surprised. I was surprised by that when I arrived here. But so how is it playing out? Start with the marketing world and what's happening there and what you're seeing. Well, first and foremost, it stops people from putting their head above the parapet because they're just too scared of being cut down at the knees. So that's huge. You know, Mm. that has an impact on how brave they are, how courageous they are as people as well as marketers. Because if there's any kind of fear, then you cannot perform to your absolute best of your ability. So just the very nature that that's kind of instinctive to cut people down when they overachieve, you're actually stopping people from doing that. So you're inhibiting them being brilliant. And it doesn't exist in the UK. Tall poppy syndrome doesn't. We love the underdog and therefore we're kind of like hardwired to push people up. And in the States... It's applauded. Well, I think age. Australia likes the underdog until they become winners, <laughs> and then exactly. it suddenly changes, right? Exactly. But is that that that? So CMOs are. Uh, are you are you suggesting that that CMOs and and marketing heads are are behaving like that and also being treated like that from further up the food chain? It's a corporate wise issue. Oh, it's definitely corporate wise, completely corporate wise. You know, if it exists, if those kind of behaviours exist anywhere, then they're going to be existing everywhere mm. because everybody's behaviours will respond in the way that that's true. You know, don't put your head above the parapet. You could get cut down. You could get fired. You've got a bigger challenge down here, I suppose, and that is it's just a more contained market. So when you reach the very top of the pyramid, when you become the CMO at the top of the pyramid in Australia, then your then your options for other jobs of that nature are just more limited. There's just fewer of them here, which means that if a CMO is holding any kind of fear at all, that their CEO is going to move on them, get them out, fire them, then they may be less desiring of pushing the boat out, you know, really standing behind something that's slightly risky. Being prepared to be fired for the right thing is harder in a market where there's not massive amounts of opportunity. Right. Should and they options. Actually, and, and options, options right. Exactly, exactly right. That leads into more conservative approaches to marketing or how they are, what they're, what marketers are doing in this market? That's di- how is it different? What do you see that's different and how they're doing their role versus, you know, the US or the UK? So I'm generalising, but I've seen that you either get the CMOs, particularly the Aussie brands, are allowed to play that bit more, right? They are allowed, they have wider job roles. In the Australian brands, their job roles are wider. So their remit is wider and they and they can play that little bit more. If they're in the global brands in the domestic market, then they can innovate a little bit more. They're allowed to test things more here. So they get some freedom to do some cool testing stuff, but they don't get a lot of money to do it. And they certainly don't get a huge amount of leverage around what they can do with the brand. So in brand and comms, they're they're more restricted. So it's a, it's kind of a double edged sword, I think. With the CMOs in the Aussie brands, you can see that they are they've just given more bandwidth to be a bit braver, and the global brands sometimes maybe not, but mm. they can play around much more with innovation. And have you had conversations with CMOs in this market about this? Do they acknowledge that this is an issue? Uh, do, are they aware of it? Are marketers generally aware of what the, the, the peculiarities of the Australian market are and what they're, what they're managing under? Some of them. Others just see it as this is, you know, this is how it is. This is business as usual. Mm. But honestly, it starts with the CEO. You know, it's the CEO that's going to set the tone. And that's one of the reasons why we invest so much in the CMO 
program that we run for the the fellows in um, Europe and the US. Well, let's just be clear about that because you, you've got two parts of the marketing academy, right? You've mm-hmm. got a scholarship program, which is for essentially emerging leaders, yep. which is what the, the cohort was this year uh, that just graduated in, in Australia. Then you have a fellowship program, which is essentially in partnership with McKinsey, yep. which is about m- basically building leadership capabilities for marketers into the CEO role. Have I got that right? That's exactly right. right. So we really do believe the academy passionately believes that the marketing skill set and all of the skill set that sits around customer should be bang centre of the boardroom. But they, the CMOs don't often present as credible candidates for a CEO role. Not historically. It's yeah. starting to change. It really is begin, beginning to change. And we've now got over 38% of our fellows have now moved into those broader, wider business roles with more responsibility, but bringing the marketing skill set into that. Unfortunately, historically, the CEOs haven't come from that place. Mm. And therefore, you've got to get a quite enlightened CEO to really, truly gift the CMO the power, the autonomy, the empowerment to do what they do best, which is grow their business by focusing on the customer. And it's a big overhead, right? It's an expensive overhead. And if the CEO really doesn't get it, if he really doesn't understand the power of brand, if he really doesn't understand the power of comms and innovation and product development and all all of the things around marketing, then he's going to give that CMO a really hard time. And that's actually got to to start to change. The CMOs can't do a massive amount about that other than be braver. Push the boat more stand behind something that they truly think is going to be a growth growth driver for the business even if a bit of risk is attached to it and then there may be the CEOs will start understanding that that's really something. That this is the sort of the circular debate in some ways, I guess, is that which comes first? Is it the CEO lacking the understanding of the marketing remit or is it that the CMO and the marketing profession haven't articulated well enough how marketing can deliver for business beyond its own sort of little bubble of metrics and measurements? So which way does that go? Do, do we have CMOs that are lacking the ability to connect to the business side of the equation? It is both. But the CMOs can do something about what they do, right? So they can let go of the outcome of whatever the CEO's background is. If they can learn the language of the board, if they can walk in the shoes of the CEO, if they can look at all of the functions that sit around the boardroom and truly understand the impact of their function on them, stop using marketing language in the boardroom. Truly engage the CEO using hardcore commercial business metrics. And they will start to educate the CEOs. And this is being done. This is being done. It's not that that doesn't happen anywhere. It happens. It does happen everywhere and in Australia as well. Just doesn't happen as much as it should. Mm. There is a gap. There's a disconnect between the CEO, the real C-suite, and the CMOs, and it's mostly around language. And it's about the CMO putting themselves front and centre of the commercial realities of the business and talking the same language. That's the kind of thing that we teach on the fellowship. And that's yes, that's the stuff that that McKinsey is is, is, is driving that that yeah. that program. Is that right? Yeah. And so you, you said there, thirty eight percent of those people that are in that fellowship program move on to broader corporate roles. Are they still have responsibility for marketing, or do they move beyond that when they in those new roles? No, they've moved beyond it in those right. new roles. You know, they're CEOs or they're presidents or they're right. managing directors or they're chief commercial officers. They've gone much broader. But why we're so passionate about that is because they're taking the marketing skill set into 
that role. Mm. So their companies will fly. I so passionately believe that the CMOs should be in those roles. Now, they don't all want it. Mm. So the people that apply to get into the fellowship are those who have the ambition to move outside broader, outside of the marketing um, function or silo. Not all marketers want that. Some CMOs, some global CMOs, some really significant players are so passionate about marketing, they will never want to move out of it. Right. And that's fine, but that's not what that program's for. The program is designed all around board stewardship and getting the CMO in that front and centre. Now, we'll come back to a couple of, you've touched on maybe some solutions to uh, how some of these challenges for marketers can be brought about. But before we do that, there is also this pressure that's on CMOs in this market, in the Australian market. You think there's also a knock-on impact in that the, the level of angst and tension between brands and agencies or partners is higher and more toxic in the Australian market than what you see in Europe and the US. Just elaborate about what, what, what are you seeing there? I noticed it when I first came. You know, when any market suffers any kind of recession or tightening up, then the stress and the fear and the anxiety rises at every level. But it should be a really symbiotic relationship, right, between the CMO and their agencies of all kinds, creative agencies, media agencies, research insight, everything. And what I've discovered in a market that's just got more tension and fear and the tall poppy syndrome you know, and, and the worry that you're just going to get fired is that the CMOs can, um, even without subconsciously, so without really realising, put an enormous amount of pressure on their agencies, which then just trickles down through the agency's employees. The agencies aren't doing themselves any favours anyway because they're not, they're not having enough honest conversations with the CMOs because they want the business. So therefore they'll promise they'll promise that they'll over deliver and that will require them to put pressure on their people. So it's a two way street here. Mm. But the relationships I saw when I first arrived, and I think it's improving, as I said, were just far more distant, far more us and them, far more client versus supplier than I see in both the UK and the US. So more adversarial, you think? Absolutely mm. more adversarial. So there's some relationships that I witness in the UK where you couldn't tell the difference between who's working for the agency and who's working for the client. You know, that even all of their language, let alone their behaviours, is we are one. We are in this together. We both need to thrive as a result of this relationship. So let's let's suffer the hardship together. Let's share it. And let's build let's build ourselves up. So I see that more, even socially in the UK and the US. I see much more coming together between the, between the two sides. And here it really is just more split. And then because you've got so much tension and anxiety and fear, it all gets percolated down. And unfortunately, it's all of the people. It's all of the younger, you know, emerging people in the industries that are suffering from that. Unlimited, which is one of the industry charities in this in this market, had a really interesting study put out, I think, late last year that basically said um, the the Australian media marketing and agency industries are twenty percent more likely than the national average to have heightened levels of stress, anxiety and depression. You think there's a link here between the tension that's going on between the marketing teams, client and agency basically, and that, that level of uh, angst in the, in the market amongst young people? Absolutely. Mm. Exactly that. It's cultural and it's about leadership and it's about relationships. It has to be. Clearly that's all driven by the economics and the economics are just all flawed at the moment. So nobody's worked it out so there's pressure 
everywhere. That's what's causing this overwhelm, you know, uncertainty, fear, stress, anxiety. It's hideous. And we can change it. We just need to improve our ability to lead. But, but let's be clear here. This is not what you're seeing as a major issue in the US and the UK. It, it does exist. Of course it yes. exists. But it isn't as acute. It's, um, it's just more collegiate, collaborative. There's more generosity of spirit. There's less, there's just literally, there's just less fear. There's less fear, mm. there's, less, there's less tension. They're more in it together. And that I don't think that's been sort of cultural norm here. I do think it's changing. I mean, the first thing that the market needed to see was what was happening. So just becoming aware of it is the first step. That report was amazing. Mm. And for some, that for some, that would have been the first time that anybody really, really thought about it, really drilled down into it. So just becoming aware that it exists will allow you the opportunity to choose whether or not you're going to change your behaviours. Culturally as a business, personally from a leadership perspective, and it all comes from culture and, and leadership, all of it. So to deal with the issue at an industry-wide level, does it start with CMOs realising what's going on and the pressure that they're putting on? Because essentially if it starts at CMOs and, and it's a pass-on to the CMOs from their C-suite, how do you realistically, how does the industry realistically start to deal with this? Because we're not, it's not going to get to these industry CEOs to go, well, you need to change your ways because we've got all this sort of stuff happening downstream in the mm. supply chain. Mm. Oh, that's kind of not going to be a decent argument. So what is the short-term ways that this stuff can start to be addressed? It isn't just the responsibility of the CMO. Every individual has responsibility for how they choose to think, so long as they're of healthy mind, right? Mm. So, so long as they really are of healthy mind. Every single person within an organisation has a responsibility to others, uh, not just to themselves. So even the younger generations that are coming up, they have a responsibility of how they're going to choose to to react to the things that are happening around them. That sits in them. From a people leadership perspective, it definitely sits with the leader. And that doesn't matter whether they're client side or agency side. You know, it's the responsibility of a CEO of an agency to protect his or her people first. Well, their mindset will tell them that the client is first. Well, without their people, they haven't got anything to give their client. So putting their own people first, I think, is important. Like I said before, that report came out, well, people realised that it was quite tough industry. I'm not sure anybody was really aware what that was doing psychologically to the people within the workplace. So that they've become aware of it, step one. You know, step two is then, what behaviours am I exhibiting at the top of my organisation, that everybody within the organisation is going to role model or mirror? Am I being the best leader I can possibly be? Am I being generous of spirit? Am I being open with my clients? Am I giving feedback to my clients that the pressure that we're feeling from them is putting inordinate pressure on my team? Can I have those open, brave conversations with everyone around me? And they've got to start there. But that can start right at the bottom of the organisation. You know, a youngster feeling safe enough to tell their next boss up that they're feeling overwhelmed without fear of being fired is a start point. The same thing at the very top is the CEO having a conversation with their board to say, we are putting such economic pressure on this business that something's going to crack if things don't change. Or the CMO going to their CEO and saying, you need to stand behind me. You need to empower me. I have a solution that I believe will grow the business forward and it may be a risk, 
but I'm prepared for you to fire me if it if it goes wrong. So, Sean, do you think the pressures that are on the emerging uh, leaders is greater than what it was when you and I were, because we're both, well, I'm old. Oh, no, I'm, I'm just as old. Okay, I'm good. possibly older. You, <laughs> so you're around 40. That's not bad. Oh, I well love done. you. So yeah. I, I guess at the Marketing Academy graduation last week or whenever it was, the theme was vulnerability, right? Mm. Exactly what you're talking about. It was really interesting because there was some some marketers and agency and media people and some and some big brands there from Tourism Australia to Samsung to Westpac all talking about the need for every individual to be more vulnerable and open about um, these things. And you hear this a little bit. This is, is there a fault line emerging between the new blood and those that have been around a bit and said, just get on with it, head down, bum up and grind? Mm. Uh and then the new guy going, no, no, that's not not, not good enough. Oh. What do you make of that? Well, there is a disconnect without a shadow of a doubt. You know, anybody over the age of, I don't know, 45 probably. You know, we were, we were brought up in a completely different environment. It shocks me sometimes. But you know how we always parent like our parents parented us? Although we don't want to. We don't want to. And when we were kids, we went, we're never going to parent like that. Right. But we do, mm. right? So what happens with the leadership, I think, is we start to lead in the way that we were led expecting the same outcome, expecting the same response that we had then, even though we may have hated the way that we were led then. So we kind of repeat the patterns of our own experiences. Um, But what we need to understand is that the pace of change in the last, like, three decades has been more than the pace of change in the previous, like, 200 years. So the generation that's coming up underneath us are completely disconnected from what we experienced in our age group. And they have different pressures. So, you know, they were brought up in the world of social media. They're they're Apple's children. We never had any of that kind of pressure. We now live our lives in goldfish bowls. So we're looking for affirmation from everyone around us outside of the workplace. You then combine that with what's happening in the workplace. And these youngsters have got pressures that we never had. But we're leading them in the same way as we were led, expecting the same outcome. That's insane. We have to start understanding that they are in a different place. And they have different needs and they have different wants. You know, what we wanted was stable job, not to be fired. Because if you worked, if you left job any more than like three jobs in five years and you were unemployable, mm. now you can't get employed if you stay with the company for five or six years because it shows you can't adapt and you're not flexible. So we wanted good salary, job title, secure job. They want flexibility, freedom, autonomy. They want to be able to grow in, in every role. They want purpose. They want meaning. Pretty quickly sometimes though, right? But how do you manage the, okay, there's some things that you just actually have to wait for or you can't have it now or we need to make some, the self needs to take some, to make some decisions and choices. Well, exactly. And that's why the leadership need to take responsibility of the development of the talent just as much as the talent need to take responsibility for the development of themselves. Mm. One thing that I see happening with the younger ones coming up is they're getting over-promoted and underdeveloped. So you you overpromote somebody because they've been a really, really good, I don't know, sales guy, suit, whatever. Uh, all of a sudden you make them a managing director, but you don't give them any kind of leadership development, any kind of real input, no mentors, no coaching. Then the pressure that you actually put on that person is irresponsible. Mm. So it's, again, it's, it's both ways. Both sides are totally accountable. 
the emerging talent coming up and their bosses to provide them with the framework in which they can thrive, whilst also the duty of care that just goes, we're going to develop you properly. But this this um, over-promote, mm. underdeveloped notion, yeah. that surely has got to do with the individual as well, wanting something ahead of their capability. Where is the self-awareness on, you know, if I'm going to do that, I need kind of these things to do it well? Well, if they've got the right leaders, the leaders would have been telling them that. Right. <laughs> right, so it doesn't quite sit with them in that nobody can come in and demand a promotion and get it. My view is that sits more on the leadership than it does on the individual. Who's going to turn that down? Who's going to say, no, 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 thank you very much, I won't take that promotion? So, Sherilyn, in the end, are you seeing some shafts of light and optimism or promise that things are changing or are we really at the start in, in the Australian market about this new way of managing ourselves, people and the, and the industry being less harsh and narky on itself? Oh, the conversation started. I definitely believe that there's more awareness within the market. The conversations have started. You can't ignore the stats, right? That people are leaving the industry. People are getting burnt out, overwhelmed. You know, we can't do that to anybody. And I've got the absolute honour of working quite closely um, with the hand-picked talent that go on our scholarship. And I am just seeing our alumni blossom. There's 150 of them now. They're in significant roles. You know, they've got to have between 10 and 20 years experience to get on the scholarship. So they're in, they may not have the number one roles, but they could be two ICs. You know, they're only one down. They're having a massive impact on the people around them. If we develop the leadership capability and nothing else, things would transform because leadership is all about focusing on the others. No, great points, and I'm about to ask a role. So for some, it'll be a roll your eyes moment that's going to come from McIntyre. But what brace for it? In this broader mental health well-being issue, um, if we look at uh, what's going on in society, what science is talking about in terms of the escalating levels of teenage depression, self harm, suicide, angst, etc., they're all on the rise. Mm. The science is saying there's a strong link between that and social media consumption, and some of the, the knock-on effects that social media does have on people. My question then is if, if this industry has a higher level of uh, anxiety, depression and so forth uh, versus the national average and the industry is higher users of technology and bigger users of social media than the average, than the national average, is there a part correlation causal effect to some of the, the issues that the industry is facing as well as the fact that it's heavy into technology and social media? <sighs> Without a shadow of a doubt. Without a shadow of a so doubt. So that's not a crazy question then? It's not a crazy question at all, right? Here's my true belief, right? Marketing, media and advertising are the only industries and functions that can really have a direct impact on the citizens of the planet in any context, right? So our craft, our power is that we can change the way that people think. We can have an impact on the decisions that people make in their life and the choices that people take in their lives. We have to own the responsibility for that power. In its holistic sense, marketing, media and advertising are the front of what the consumers, the citizens on the planet, will consume via social media. So we absolutely have responsibility to make sure that the work that we're putting out is going to have 
a positive impact rather than a negative one. Fascinating conversation. We need to wrap up, or I need to wrap up with your final observations on the difference in the capabilities for marketers in Australia versus what you're seeing in the US and the UK because the the marketing teams, the marketing budgets are much bigger. There is a sort of a skill difference. Tell us about that and what does it mean, both the up and downside to that? And it is a double-edged sword. So I do see the skills, the breadth of skill set here is wider because all of the teams are just that little bit smaller, which means you have to multitask more, right? You have to do you know I've known some of our scholars do like three people's job that an equivalent scholar in the UK would have so the, the, the thing that the UK and the US has is they have real depth of skills so there's more expertise right there's more depth and here there's more breadth which is great because they get multifaceted and you know they get good at more things but then sometimes that will then the knock-on effect of that is that you can lack the rigor of deep expertise right. in a certain segment of you know of your whole marketing mix. So it is a little bit of a double-edged sword. I think made up for the fact that a lot of the emerging talent go go overseas to go and do a couple of years stint in the UK or the US or Europe or wherever, and then come back and bring that back in. Right. Um, and then they can bring back in that more depth expertise. Back in, I also think that Australia is a great export market for talent from the UK. <laughs> and um, well, ironically, we're quite hard on ourselves, but you say that the the interest in Australian talent is quite high in, in overseas markets. Oh my God, yes, they're great. To, oh yeah, the perception of Aussie talent in well, certainly the UK. I haven't actually tested it so much in the US, but certainly in the UK, I've almost always got one or two Aussies on our UK scholarship. Right, because because they have fabulous optimism. But, you know, irony, isn't it? <laughs> it is an irony. Maybe it's because they're in the UK. And they're, oh, I don't know. I can't work that out. Humour. They're just more laid back. They're more, you know, sure of themselves. They're fun. Really, really fun to work with. And I do hard hear their work workers. ethic. I was going to say the work ethic's quite strong too. Yeah, hard workers. Yeah. Hard, hard workers. So um, I honestly don't think you've got a real problem skill set wise down here. It's just that it is just that little bit smaller. And therefore the CMOs don't have quite as much of a sand pit to play to play in and so sometimes you know you'll lack being able to get that real volume of breadth of experience that you can get in other markets Sharon Shekhar we have to stop talking um, so we are going to but that's been a fascinating conversation Uh, I I hope the discussion and discourse across the industry continues and advances and gets more developed and mature and I think that's you know you've made the points really strongly so safe travels we'll talk to you next time you're out thank you thank you thank you Paul MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre, that's moi, in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Nick Slater, music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search MI3 Audio Edition on Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button.